Welcome back to South African Border Wars with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 5, and we'll hear a bit more about Angola, but most of the episode is going to focus on our main story, how the SA Defence Force began rearming itself in the early 1960s. As nations across Africa were decolonizing, it appeared to the National Party in Pretoria that black majority rule would find its way to Southwest Africa. Last episode, we heard how the South African government had begun to impose the strict rules of apartheid across both territories. National Party politicians knew that it would only be a matter of time before they were faced with a Soviet-inspired insurgency on their doorstep. The major weak point in Southwest Africa was the Caprivi Strip, which was bordered by Angola, Southwest Africa, Botswana, Zambia, and at its eastern point, Rhodesia. South Africa's National Party was trying to cope with reports of increased insurgency in Southwest as Angola to the north became more unstable. By 1966, the Portuguese and Angola had been fighting against various independence movements, including the MPLA, UNITA, and the newly renamed FNLA, for at least five years. It was inevitable that the Southwest African People's Organization, or SWAPO, would begin to mobilize south of the border. Pretoria's response, according to war researcher Leopold Skoltz, was based on their unwillingness to acknowledge that SWAPO formed a real danger to Southwest domination at first. The early years of the battle against SWAPO were going to be led by the SA police and not the army. Much has been said and written about this approach, with the military hawks in the National Party pressing for a more determined response and the political leadership preferring to avoid escalation. They were watching what the Americans were up to in Vietnam at that time. The South African army at this stage was pretty neglected compared to what would happen in the late 70s. It suffered from the after-effects of the Second World War. It also suffered from an ideological shift where many of the top officers had been pushed out of the SADF by the nationalist-led Afrikaans-speaking political order of the day. The English were not wanted by these nationalists, whose narrative was one of extremism, particularly when it came to that terrible war of 1899-1902, the Anglo-Boer War. The Minister of Defence, Franz Erasmus, had instituted affirmative action to promote Afrikaners at all costs, and if that meant weakening the army in the short term, he didn't care. As long as the people who looked and sounded right were promoted, Erasmus was a happy man. So too were his fellow nationalists. This has a curious ring to it in the 21st century, with the African nationalists basically doing the same thing to Afrikaans and English-speaking whites in the military. The African National Congress has also disemboweled the leadership on a general basis by instituting race-based affirmative action, which means change at all costs. That only works in a stable situation when you have a strong currency and growing economy. The weakness in this philosophy only shows up when there's a crisis. And of course, another irony about the ANC's action in South Africa is that the government today cannot really lay claim to any memory of the border war because they were largely absent from the fighting. It is a fact that the Angolans remind the South Africans about at times and something that irks those in power in modern South Africa. So the SADF in 1966 was not the powerhouse that it grew into by the early 1980s, when it was considered the most powerful and feared army in Africa. There had been some changes with the old-fashioned Lee-Enfield rifle of the First World War being replaced by the Belgian FN, or a version of it called the R1. This was an automatic rifle that used 7.62 ammunition, and it was to remain in use until the R4 and R5 appeared much later. The Bren light machine gun with the 303 caliber was replaced by a version that fired 7.62mm rounds, and used the same magazine as the R1. The infantry also deployed the Saracen armoured personnel carriers dating back from the 1950s. 
The South Africans' anti-tank gun they used remained the Second World War 6-pounder and the 3.5-inch rocket launcher. By 1966, these had been replaced by the NTAC anti-tank weapon, while the defunct 3-inch mortar was on its way out in favour of the 81mm. The SADF still used the First World War Vickers machine gun, and that would remain in use for another 10 years. By 1966, the Army had Sherman and Comet tanks, which were also dated from 1945. The Irland armoured car, or what we called the Noddy car, was in use. It's basically a French panard known as the AML, but called the Noddy car partly because of how it rocked back and forth over the uneven felt, and the fact that the first versions in South Africa actually resembled Noddy's car in some ways. However, it had two major drawbacks. It was petrol-powered, so it could burst into flame if it, and also slightly underpowered. But it was preferred to the Daimler Ferret that the SA Defence Force had used since the Second World War, and that was armed only with a general-purpose machine gun. In July 1961, a South African military delegation headed by Minister of Defence Jim Fushi and SADF Commandant General Peter Krobola travelled to France to negotiate a licensing agreement with Panard for those vehicles. The AML was favoured because the SADF's priorities at the time were fighting a possible counterinsurgency campaign or an unconventional bush war, and the basic requirements of which were light armoured vehicles with the greatest mobility and most simplified maintenance. Elans were to form the mainstay of the SA Defence Force Armoured Corps for nearly 30 years, but by the mid-1980s it was presumed to be underpowered as South Africa believed it would fight more tank warfare, which was true by the time of Guido Carnavali. In 1987. The artillery was also equipped with light 25-pounder or 88mm guns and medium 5.5-inch, both dating from before 1945. So, not exactly the most up-to-date army in the world at this stage. That, of course, was going to change radically within two decades, as the war in Southwest began to dominate National Party cabinet meetings back in Pretoria and the Treasury. The infantry had been negatively affected at first by the nationalists seeking to remove English-speaking officers who were thought of almost as the enemy by the new ruling class. By 1962, the voluntary military service system was replaced with a ballot system, which meant some white men were called up to serve for nine months. It was quickly realized that nine months is not enough to train and deploy men properly, and this was the change in 1968, where military service was converted to a full year. By the time I was trained, it was 1981, and military service was two years. Each period of the border war caused an escalation, in the same way as the American experience in Vietnam and more recently in Afghanistan. The training in the early 1960s was not very good by all accounts, with much of what was going on really rooted in a kind of Second World War mentality and conventional warfare. As Scholes points out, there were only two units that were respected, the Army Gymnasium itself and one parachute battalion. The Special Forces or Reckeys were only created in 1969, so the first years of this war were to be characterised by the new officer corps coming to grips with a new form of warfare. By 1966, the SA Defence Force was in no position to fight either a conventional nor an unconventional war. However, it had the advantage of being grounded in two intrinsically opposed disciplines. One, the British Army Organisation, and the other was the Boer Commando innovations of the 19th century. These two cultures, which had at first clashed inside the SADF, were co-opted by a fresh officer corps, including leaders like Yanni Heldenhuis, who had quickly emerged as one of the new brand of South African professional military. It was Yanni Heldenhuis who led the Guard of Honour on the 27th of January 1960 at Jan Smuts Airport for British Prime Minister Harold Macmillan. 
I mentioned him last episode and his winds of change speech that he was to make in South Africa's parliament in Cape Town in February. Geldenhuis was trained partly at British Army Intelligence School at Maresfield, where one of the courses he received was delivered by Winston Churchill's former head of security. The Sharpeville massacre in 1960 meant the SADF officer corps was highly aware of the nationalist movement back home and began to understand the ramifications for southern Africa as a whole. Geldenhuis mentions in his book called At the Front that he and other South Africans being trained by the British were acutely aware of what was going on around the time of Sharpeville. The culture of professionalism grew year by year, even as the political pressure inside South Africa and Southwest Africa increased. By combining the best elements of the British system, which included banning officers from making any income through any business-related dealing, and understanding that it was a disgrace to become insolvent with some of the Boer honour code, it made for an interesting-looking army. It is difficult for some now to appreciate what this means, but it is one of the main reasons why the army did not agree to a coup as demanded by P.W. Butcher and his hardliners many years later. Apart from these codes, the other main change experienced in the army was the development of the appreciation of what science meant. The Boer commander system had espoused innovation, but it was also riddled with poor discipline, in fact anarchy at times, and a reliance on magic. The power of the Bible was supposed to be at the heart of the military struggle by the Afrikaner, and in the mid-1960s, this shifted to an ideological understanding of the power of science over magic. Modern concepts like this caused a clash of cultures in the changing SA Defence Force. Geldenhuis himself was stressed by that clash, but knew it was an imperative in any future conflict. To know something rather than wish for something is a fundamental principle of an effective army. It's the basis of intelligence, and Geldenhuis refers to this as it is the discipline whereby the assumptions, underlying principles, methods and boundaries of scientific knowledge are explored and scientific laws are formulated. The new officer corps also developed techniques to convert opaque concepts into easy-to-understand orders and then to quickly transfer these to NCOs and individual troops. I set out to be rational, said Geldenhuis, and I practiced it to the extreme. He would argue with fellow officers about whether Pretoria was actually hot when Messina was hotter. He would argue in a factual and logical manner rather than indulge in small talk. This in some ways would be at the heart of the successful SA Defence Force later. Ignore the party political propaganda, concentrate on the real threats and opportunities. That's strategic. By 1964, South African officers were being sent as military observers to Angola, which by now was well into its war of independence. Geldenhuis was transferred to Luanda, the capital, in 1965, as Ian Smith made his unilateral declaration of independence speech. This was only a year before the South Africans would be fighting in northern southwest Africa. As officers made their way to Angola, they began to learn two things. One was a basic understanding of Portuguese, and the other was an appreciation for how to conduct war inside Angola. Meanwhile, the SA Air Force was equally unprepared for any war. It had taken possession of a great aircraft, the Dassault Mirage III, 17 with the HJ-1EZ ground attack variant, and 16 others with the HRCZ interceptor. On face value, this was a good sign, but in reality the Mirage would suffer later from its endurance limit of only 40 minutes. That's all good and well in Europe, but in the vast spaces of Africa, it's a problem. The SA Air Force would need a significant upgrade in both training and equipment, which eventually took place after Operation Savannah, only in 1975. More about that in later podcasts. 
The SA Air Force bought 16 Buccaneers and 8 Canberras. These were to prove most useful throughout the border war, as you're going to hear. However, they suffered from one major problem, the cavalier attitude to maintenance and flying the Buccaneer in particular. By 1978, nine of the Buccaneers had been lost in flight accidents. When the climax of the border war approached in 1988, this kind of lackadaisical approach to flying meant there were only five left. Like the Americans in Vietnam, the South Africans quickly realized the value of the much-vaunted aircraft, the helicopter. Without these, the army would have been unable to fight. 128 Sud Aviation Alouette three light helicopters were bought in various batches by the SA Air Force throughout the 1960s. I saw these being used as helicopter gunships in Angola later. They, of course, were not designed for this role, but it was one innovation that really worked in the felt of Africa as they swooped low and fast armed with machine guns and other weapons. It's a small helicopter unsuited to carry loads, and by 1970, South Africa had purchased 20 Puma. By the late 1970s, the SA Air Force had 68 Pumas and another 16 Superfurlands. You can see that these numbers are paltry by World Air Force standards, the troop carriers, for example, were 40 World War II Douglas DC-3 Dakotas, the DAX, 9 Transall C-160s, and only 7 Lockheed C-130 Hercules. There was no way later in this war that there were enough aircraft to conduct deep operations into Angola, other than by using the road. This would have a major impact on what was going to happen in the water war. The Navy's tactical role was limited as well, but it was useful operationally. The Navy had two Second World War destroyers, three Type 12 President frigates, and three French-built Daphne-class submarines. Over the next two and a half decades, the subs would be used to deploy special forces and to track Russian and Cuban vessels. By the 1970s, Israeli-built strike craft would be in use, along with ad hoc fishing boats for recce operations. By 1966, when the war formally started, when the SA police and some military attacked a Swapo base at Ngulumbash, the South Africans were hardly prepared when it came to equipment, let alone infantry numbers. This would change rapidly over the course of the 23 years of South Africa's border war. So that's enough for this week. Next episode, we'll take a look at the event that triggered those 23 years, that attack on Ngulumbash. At the same time, we'll hear about what was going on in Angola. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you have the inclination. You can also send me an email through my abwarpodcast.com website or direct message me on Twitter at Des Latham. Until then, be safe. Goodbye.